Thanks, Vanessa. If you want to leave your Bibles open, that'd be fantastic. Uh, my name's Rowan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I want to encourage you, if you're a woman, to go to those refresh nights. I think that they're great. They're a great opportunity for women to learn from women. And what you didn't hear is that Ash is actually preaching. So you get to hear her preach. Uh, if you're a woman, it'd be a great night to go along. So uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what it was like. Why don't we uh, come to our God now and ask Him to help us understand this passage? Because there's a lot in it. And there's a lot that we need to see. And hopefully, as we understand this tonight, it'll change the way we live and how we have freedom to live the Christian life. So let's pray. Father, we come tonight asking you to mold and shape us. We ask that through your spirit and by your word this evening, we would see clearly your love for us. You would see our, help us to see our own brokenness. And as we come away from your word, that we might live our lives changed to trust the God who is there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the biggest frustrations of life, I think, is that so often we make the same mistakes. Do you get that? You kind of go in and you do the same dumb things over and over and over again. The same struggles come up. The same sins raise their, their ugly head. Sometimes it feels like, History is just on repeat, like we're hardwired to do the same dumb things. Like, have you felt that? Or is it just me? Okay, awkward laugh. Maybe you can tell me later. But for me, I feel like the same things keep coming up. The same areas. I find myself consistently procrastinating around sermon preparation, like this week. Like, it's not that I don't do it, it's that I want to know more, I want to read more, I want to read another commentary, because I want this to be the best sermon ever. And so I spend a bit of time here, a bit of time there, and really what's driving me is, I, I just want it to be the perfect sermon, so people will be like, oh, that was really helpful, and oh, isn't Rowan great? So behind that is this ugly kind of thing called pride that keeps raising its head. There's good mixed in, and it just pushes me to not start earlier. It's just this repeated pattern, and I wish it would stop, I wish I could get on top of it. I wish I could get on top of texting while driving. Does anyone else do that? Real life confessions? Oh, no one. Okay, get out. <laughs> I can't believe you would do No, but I just, I, I keep going, oh, I need to do this. And I go to pick up my phone. I did it on the way here tonight. I'm like, what? I put it down. I didn't keep texting. I'm like, what is going on? Or like taking frustration out on my family. I don't know if you do that as well. You're frustrated at something and so you snap at home or to someone in your flat. You say something that you shouldn't have because you think you're entitled to say it because you've had a bad day. And the same sins raise their ugly heads. I guess is they do for you as well. And that reality can push us um, in one or two ways. Firstly, it can push us into despair. It feels like, you know, it's just too much. I can't do it. I can't stop these kind of failings. I can't stop them because they just keep coming up and up. And so we just give up. We kind of drift off into a life of complacent despair, saying, ah, oh, it's too hard, and drift away. The other way is kind of a life driven by a, a guilt-focused frenzy. I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to kill this thing. I'm, I've got to get better. I've got to fix this problem. I've got to change. I've got to change. And we focus on it so much, we start kind of glitching ourselves. We start kind of, you know, this is what I've got to do. This is what I've got to do. And we're driven by guilt and we just drive and drive and drive until, well, my identity depends on me being able to beat this problem. Me being able to say no to this sin. Me being able to get on top of this brokenness in my life. 
and unknowingly. Everything in life, these, beating these problems becomes our idol. And before we know it, the weight of being perfect, of being just like we want to be, doing better and better and better, crushes us. And what I want to show us tonight is that there is another way other than these two. There's a way that doesn't leave us in, de- in despair and a way that doesn't drive us to guilt, frenzied destruction. We've been following the life of a man named Abraham and seeing the promises God had made to him. And for Abraham and Sarah, their life, like ours, was plagued with a little bit of history repeated. Chapter 20, we were left filled with hope. The smoke of Sodom was behind them. There was a new city, a new start. And we kind of start out in this new city thinking maybe they'll be right now. Maybe they'll trust God and keep going through and Abraham will be the man. And then we read just two verses into chapter 20, these words. They're not on the screen. Abraham said about his wife, Sarah, she's my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, had Sarah brought to him. They enter a new town and Abraham's worried that the, the king in this new city is going to take his wife. Now she's 90, right? She must be a pretty good looking 90 year old. He rocks up and the king's like, oh, this lady, she can come in here. I, you know, I think there's something great about Sarah's. I'm married to one. They're excellent, right? But here, he's worried that this king is going to take his wife. So he says to her, oh, just pretend you're my sister. Thing is, he'd done exactly the same thing in Genesis 12. What's he trying to guard? What's he trying to protect in this situation? Well, that God would bring blessing to his family. But he wants to bring it about by lying, by going outside the way of God. Listen to what Abraham says in Genesis 12 um, about his reasoning to Sarah. Again, it's not on the screen. Let me just read it to you. Please say you're my sister. So it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. I I hope you see the horror of this. Pretend you're my sister so that the king can sleep with you and won't kill me so he can sleep with you. Can you believe he said that about his own wife? To pimp out your wife. Yeah, go for it. She's just my sister. It's okay. Why would you say such a thing? Because you think you need to achieve the promises of God on your own terms in your own way. And how often we fall into that trap. Abraham and Sarah failed to trust that God would do what he said he would. Now, it wasn't their normal mode of operation. These were anomalies for this family. But when the pressure was on, their fallback position was to trust themselves and not God. And again, does that point to some characteristics of you and me? For Sarah, we then hear part of her story. In the next chapter, we read of of her jealousy at Hagar. Now, remember, Hagar was the servant that she told Abraham to go and sleep with so that, well, they would have children like God promised. Again, taking the promises of God into her own hand. She had this horrible treatment of this servant that continued on. And then she became convinced that this Ishmael, this child, would take over from a child that she might have. Listen to what happens. Genesis 21 verse 1. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. 
Sarah became pregnant. Like this is the age of 90, right? Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God has commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. We need to stop for a moment in this story. I know we're looking at the failings of Sarah, but we read as we get to this point that she has a son. Now we need to stop and be amazed. This is amazing. Who here knows of a 90-year-old who has had a child? Any hands? Right? No one. That's like that this just does not happen. And here God has kept his promises. It's kind of easy to go, yeah, yeah, we know the story. She was old, they had a kid, but just stop. God kept his promise. I don't know what your view is of God tonight. I don't know what's brought you here, whether you're a Christian or whether you have some other belief. But the claim of history is that this God that we are talking about, the God who made you and sustained you, is a God who is amazing. This is unheard of. Do you see the wonder of the God who keeps his promises, who brings life from death, even despite our own failings and wickedness, continues to stick to his word day in, day out, forever. He is like no other. He brings life from death. He is against all odds. Who else is like this God? Abraham and Sarah's life has been far from perfect, but God still keeps his word. And what's their response? How do they respond when this child comes into the world? Laughter. Laughter, tears of joy, celebration. You've got to be kidding me. We just had a kid. We're like 90 and 100. Like, this is crazy. And so enjoy, they respond, they laugh, they celebrate, they praise God. You know, Isaac actually means laughter. Because God has kept his promises against all odds. Let me ask tonight. As you reflect on the God who keeps his promises, do you celebrate his amazing works? Do you laugh with joy at that he chooses people like us, broken, sinful people, and brings us to know him and love him and serve him? Do you sing with joy about the moments he keeps us from temptation? He reminds us of what is right. He shapes us to be more and more like his son. Do you laugh and celebrate with joy? The joy it is to know God's love. Just the plain fact that we can get up each day and the world keeps turning. This is because God keeps his promises. Your accomplishments, however big or small they are, all because of this God. He made you, he sustains you, he gifted you with all that you are. Why would we not celebrate? We need to be people who are joyful, who joyfully respond to the God who made us and who loves us. Abraham and Sarah at this moment lead us so well. They respond as they ought. But as we get to chapter 22, we see there's an issue with Abraham and Sarah. An issue that kind of comes into their world and starts really being quite ugly in the middle of this whole situation. Sarah becomes jealous. We'd had hints of it before when she was jealous about Hagar and didn't want her around. Now that she's got her child and she sees 
Ishmael, Hagar's child, Abraham's servant that he slept with when she suggested it, which he shouldn't have. Don't listen to your wife, Sarah, at that point. Well, there is a part that it does say, always listen to your wife, Sarah, and that's really bad for me. Anyway, Sarah becomes jealous. She's jealous. And, and, and so she says, I want Hagar out and Ishmael. I don't want anything to do with them. The question is, why is this recorded? Why is this little section here? Have a look with me. 21 verse 9. If it's in your Bibles, you can see it. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with a son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. Wow. What we see again is another bit of history repeated. Sarah doesn't trust that God will do what he said. That Isaac will inherit the blessing. Jealousy consumes Sarah because Isaac has become the center of her life. Have you ever seen those overprotective parents? They call them helicopter parents. You know, right? Because they're like hovering around their kid, like, oh, oh, they're going to put dirt in their hands. Like, oh, well, what's going on here? And they're kind of, they're so protective of this child because that child is the world to them. That child is everything, and that child means everything. I think that's actually what's going on here. Sarah's laughter turns to rage because she sees Ishmael making fun of her son. And what what is brought into into question? (gasps) Maybe God will bless Ishmael as much as Isaac. And I won't have that because Isaac is my child. Isaac is the center of my world. Isaac is what I am about. So this is how God responds. Chapter two, sorry, chapter twenty-two, verse two. God says to Abraham, "Take your son," he said, "your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I will tell you about." And you read that, and you're like, "What? What is going on here?" What is happening? Why would this God say that? It seems so wrong. I want to put it to you that what is actually the issue is that Isaac has become the issue for this family. Now that God has fulfilled his promise, Isaac has become their idol. They're like, Isaac, this, this kid, he is going to be all our blessings and the stars will be numerous through him. He is our everything. He is the light of our life rather than the God who gave him to them. How often we let the gifts eclipse the giver. We prayerfully depend on God through some trial or hardship. And sometimes he answers that with a yes. And we become so besotted with the answer that we forget the God who gave it to us. The moment a financial pressure lifts, the moment a relationship is mended, the moment that sickness is relieved, the God we so profoundly depended on before in our need gets thrown aside like wrapping paper on Christmas Day. So excited by the gift, we forget the card and the one who gave it. Building your life on your children, either by becoming afraid of displeasing them or so fixated on making them your perfect progeny, that you over-discipline them, is idolatry. It's living your life to serve kids. Some of you might have kids. Many of you probably don't. Many of you hopefully will. My advice to every pregnant mum 
is this. Do not worship what is in your womb. Worship the one who created him or her. The God who made them. Abraham and Sarah fall into the trap of a little bit of history repeated. The trap that we all fall into. The question for you and me tonight is, what is it for you? What sins are you susceptible to fall into? What things do you find keep raising their ugly head in your life? Where is God putting his finger in your life right now? Is it the way you compare yourself to others and think yourself better or worse? Is it, the, is it the things that you look at on a screen? Is it the things that you do with others that you ought not? Is it the worship of relationship, friendship, the desire for a spouse? Finding our, our identity in the gifts God has given us rather than the giver is exactly the same thing that Abraham and Sarah have done. How do you try and receive God's blessing on your own terms, separate from Him? Trust of yourself is distrust of God. So now in chapter 22, God comes to Abraham to help him realize that it's the giver that matters, not the gift. And he does, he does it through the freedom that faith brings. And that's the answer that I want us to focus on tonight. The key to how do we live life, not in despair, not by a guilt-driven frenzy, but the life God wants us to live. How do we do that? We do it through the freedom of faith. See, if we continually focus on our failings and by brute force try and bash them out, we end up worshipping this idea of a perfect life. Just like Abraham and Sarah continually focused on their son Isaac, they ended up worshipping him rather than the true and living God. But for us, when our failures return, we then get devastated. I still haven't beaten this. I still haven't done this. How can I be what I want to be? How can I be the perfect human? We can't. Now, freedom comes not from trying harder, nor from giving up, but from trusting the God who does what he says. Freedom comes from trusting the God who does what he says. Abraham and Sarah, despite their ups and downs, trusted God would do what he said. And in the end, they didn't look to their ability to bring about God's purposes and promises. But they trusted that God would provide in the end. And that's what he did. To live a life of the, in the freedom of faith is to trust in God's provision. God provided Abraham. God provided Abraham with a son, Isaac. But one of the other keys to the freedom of faith is to look at God's provision. But it's not the only way. God also tests us. He molds us. And that's exactly what he does here in this story. The child who'd understandably become the center of Abraham and Sarah's life could not remain the center. So God tests Abraham. Come with me in your Bibles. Open up to Genesis 22 verse 1. And I want us to see these verses in their depth. After he said these things, God tested Abraham. 
and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What's going on? Well, lots of people have argued about this passage over history, and, and some people have come along and said, well, you know, the moral of the story is, whatever God tells you to do, just do it, no matter whether you think it's right or wrong. That's not what this is talking about. It's not saying just do outrageous stuff for God because that's what he says. No, no, I hope to show you that this wasn't quite outrageous. In fact, this is kind of right in some senses. And I also want to say, I'm not giving us a a kind of get out of jail free card where we can say to God, look, God, your morality doesn't really match up with my morality. I think I'm a little more moral than you. And so I'm going to do what I think and not what you think. No, 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 no. God made us. He knows what is right and good. The question for us is, how is this right and good? Well, first of all, God doesn't just rock up and tell Abraham to murder his son. There's something more going on. If God just wanted to say, right, you're depending on your son too much, kill him now. He would have said it that way. Rather than saying, no, 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 go and take him on a three-day journey and then up onto a mountain when there's like burning wood and a flame and a knife and keep the flame alight the whole way and when you get there, offer him as a sacrifice. He wouldn't have said all that. He would have just said, stab him in the back while he's sleeping. Just get it done because you're trusting in him too much. No, he didn't ask for that. He calls him to offer Isaac up as an offering. Secondly, we have to realize that it's because he asked him to offer him as an offering that we see something going on behind the scenes. You've got to understand Isaac is the firstborn. And there's an idea of this firstborn throughout the whole Old Testament, throughout that age and time. See, The command to Abraham's ears was not as incomprehensible and crazy and nutty as it feels to us. See, people in the ancient world understood what we don't. What Abraham realized is what everybody understood. Every time God said, the life of the firstborn is mine, what he's really saying is that there is a debt of sin that every family owes me. We all live self-centered lives. It's the reason the world is in the mess that it's in. And a God of justice can't overlook lives lived in rebellion against Him. You can't just say, oh, that's fine for those things to go on, for people to murder and kill and do all horrible things throughout the world against me. No, He's a just God and justice must be paid. And that means that no family on the face of the planet has treated God as we ought. There is a debt every family owes to justice. There's a debt every human being owns, the debt of sin. And in a family-oriented, non-individualistic society, the death of the firstborn was God's way of saying, no one is righteous, not even one. People were to offer the firstborn of their flock or of their crop, recognizing all of them came from God because we owe our lives to Him. It was never given that you should offer the firstborn son. That was not a thing that God had done because that is not right. God wouldn't do that. And he, and, and he actually um, prohibits that throughout the rest of the Old Testament. No, the other nations around were offering their firstborn toward their God. This is not what God does. It's not something he makes Abraham go through with. But it's something that Abraham would have understood. See, the same thing happened with Cain and Abel. 
you look back to Genesis 4, Abel offered the first fruits to God and God was pleased. He recognized his debt to God and that the first fruits needed to come to God. But Cain didn't. Cain just got some stuff that was lying around, not the first fruits, and that was offensive to God. Cain had not recognized his debt to God. Throughout the scriptures, we see that there is a debt of sin that everyone has to pay. So when God says, offer up your son Isaac, he's calling in his debt. He was just in asking for Isaac's life. He wouldn't. He wouldn't go through with it. There was something even more special coming. But he would have been just in asking for every life. Because every single person on the, on the face of the planet has rejected the true and living God. We've rejected the God who gives life. And if you say to the one who gives life, I don't want you, he says, okay. Therefore, as Abraham heard the words of God, he realized the great horror. Hebrews 11 helps explain it. Helps explain what was going on in the mind of Abraham. Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises he was offering his unique son. The one it had been said about, your seed will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone back from the dead. And as an illustration, he received him back. What was going on for Abraham? He was trying to understand how the command of God to offer up justly the firstborn son could sit with the promise of God that through this child all nations will be blessed. The command of God contradicted the promise of God or that's what it seemed like to him. The command was just. There was a debt that needed to be paid. But the promise of God is that Isaac, would, through Isaac, the world will be saved. To Abraham, though he didn't know how, trusted both the command and the promise. It's a great example of what it is to trust God. He trusted that the God who brings life from a dead womb could fulfill his promise by raising a dead son, perhaps. He recognized his debt. He understood the promise and he obeyed his God. Then the narrator slows down this whole passage. We're all watching. How will God solve this problem? So let's go through it slowly. Open it up in your Bibles. Genesis 22 verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the sacrificial knife and the two of them walked on together. Do you feel the tension? The scene slowed down. What will happen? 
you see Abraham taking the wood and laying it on his son. You kind of see his 15-year-old around that sort of age. Son's eyes look back. Abraham carries the dangerous stuff, the knife and the fire. He gives the wood to Isaac. He's like, you take them. And the two of them walked on together. How will God resolve this problem? Abraham doesn't know. Isaac doesn't know. Verse 27. Sorry, verse 7. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now this is the only recorded conversation we have in the whole of the Bible between Abraham and Isaac. This moment. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. The air is so thick. You're like, what here will happen? What will go on? And try to put out that we know that the narrator is taking us through. What Abraham is saying here, and it is a model of faith. He's saying, I don't know how God is going to be both holy and just and gracious at the same time. I don't know how he's going to have the debt of sin paid. That's why we're going up this mountain and still be the God of his promises, who says through Isaac, I will, the world will be saved. I don't, I don't know how he's going to do this, but I know he will. I know he will. What Abraham does know is that God will provide, for this is the God who is faithful to his promises. Verse 9. When they arrived at the place that God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, arranged the wood. Then he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he replied, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. See, Abraham knew that the sacrifice had to be given. That the family had a debt to pay and he trusted that God would provide the sacrifice and he did. But he also obeyed the command of the Lord. Up until that very moment that God said, that's enough. Verse 14. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. You're like, right? You kind of sit here and be like, wow, that was close. But what I love is the trust of Abraham who takes God at his word. The great theologian John Calvin said that this example is here for our imitation. He says, In such moments, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us when there is none. In such moments in life, when it appears that there is no way forward, the only remedy is to leave the event for God, to trust Him that He may open a way for us. What you see here is faith lived out. 
Now, lots of people talk about faith. You get to hear people in the street like, oh, yeah, do you believe? Do you have faith? You know, you just got to have faith. All these people say these words. But what you're seeing in front of you today is real faith. It's a faith that is worked out in action. It's not just a mere assent or belief. It's a faith that's lived out. James, uh, one of the apostles, Jesus' brother, says this about Abraham. James 2.20, it's on the screen. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see, that faith was active together with works. And by works, faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friends. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do not for one second think that just knowing about God means you know God. If you really know this God, you will trust him with your life and that will be lived out. That's exactly what James is saying. Mere assent is useless. Oh God, I trust you, but I'm going to go and live some other way. Abraham takes God at his word and he acts. He is the model of faith. Real faith is a faith that works, that takes God at his word and trusts in his goodness and promises. How do we live a life when it feels like we're tempted to turn to despair or turn to the the fury of what I must do? We trust that God tests and molds us and shapes us so we will trust him. And then again, we see God provides Here is the God who provides again. And there was the ram. Now, what's interesting about this whole moment is where it happened. I don't know if you noticed it on the way through. I don't know if it rang any bells for you as you went through. It didn't originally for me, but they went to a mountain called Moriah. I'm like, I haven't really heard much of that mountain before. But what's really interesting is that Moriah is the mountain range where the temple in Jerusalem was built. This whole sacrifice happened at the place God would call his dwelling place, at the place where Jesus would later on come and say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Come with me and I'll show you that. 2, 2 Chronicles verse, chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. This whole event happened in the very mountains where God the Father would watch his only beloved son willingly carry through with what Abraham and Isaac were never asked to do. Do you see what this is? Do you see who this is pointing to? You only see where God's Anger is poured out rightly and a sacrifice is offered. And at the same time, God's hope is given. You only see those two things happen fully at the cross in the hills in Mount Moriah as God the Son walks to his death. As Jesus dies on that cross as the sacrificial lamb who died for us, he does what God never asked Abraham and Isaac to do. God, in the person of his son, takes the penalty for the family of humanity, for those who will trust in him. So that we can be saved. 
And at the same time, as the great-great-grandson of Sarah and Isaac brings blessing to the whole world. Abraham believed God could have raised Isaac from the dead. The father did raise the son from the dead. Abraham believed in something that God would eventually do with his own son. Seeing the faithfulness of God fuels our faith. It allows us to live it out. So, what do we learn through this whole section? What is this, this whole event here for us to do? Well, I want to put it to you that we see that growth in life is fueled by the context of faith. Growth is fueled by the context of faith. Let me, let me draw together a few, few threads for you. Number one, Isaac's name. Now think about it. They called Isaac laughter. That, that's, that's great because they were joyful. But also, you remember the reason why they called him laughter? It wasn't just to celebrate with great joy. It was because Sarah had laughed when God said, you're going to have a child. She's like, oh, that's pretty stupid to herself. God said, you said that. She said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. And because of that, God says, you will call your child laughter so that for the rest of your days, you will remember that you laughed at me, but I came through. God tells them to call Isaac laughter because he wants them to remember it. He wants them to remember that it wasn't their good deeds that saw them get a son, but exactly the opposite. That despite their distrust, God provided 